in Genesis chapter 6, um, but I'm going to do a little bit of an overview in a moment or two, just because we, we dropped, we finished off last week, if you remember, in chapter 4, about halfway through chapter 4, but I'm just going to read the passage from Genesis. We're going to start a little series on Noah, and it starts with this. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown verse 5 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and they had every and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and had grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Then this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door on the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I have established my covenant with you, and you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing and all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to bring them along with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It will serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, as we deal with some of these 
somewhat challenging verses. Father, we know that you are Lord and God and sovereign over all. And Father, we just pray, Lord God, that we would be men and women filled with your spirit, that we would walk in step with you, be righteous before you, that we would honor you in the way in which we live. But Lord, we pray, Lord God, as we just examine these verses, Lord, that you would just take them, Lord God, and just allow your word to change us again today. We pray it in your precious name. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we have seen this devastating consequence of sin. So the human race has been created in God's image, but it cannot even manage their own lives, never mind that of God's creation. And things have, well, they're just beginning to fall apart. So this next section of Genesis is from Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, through to chapter 6, verse 8, covers a a period of about 1,500 years of human history, years that are overshadowed by sin and by sorrow. So actually, it'd be very easy for us to believe that God's promise in chapter 3, verse 15, of the hope of a redeemer born of a woman who would one day become the serpent crusher is actually dead along with Abel. But even in the darkest moments, there are signs of hope. A hope actually that looks almost impossible until you remind yourself that God is sovereign over all things and that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, at the end of chapter 4, we read that the Lord enables Eve to conceive, to bear a son who she calls Seth, because God has appointed him to replace Abel. So despite Satan's attack, actually despite the disobedience of people, God is always faithful to work out his plan, and nothing, nothing and no one can stop his promise of a redeemer being fulfilled. God will accomplish his purposes through his chosen people. So in chapter 4 and 5, we haven't read them, but you can have a look later on if you want to. In chapter 4 and 5, there's this long list of names that are mentioned. Now, some of the names you'll know about, others you've probably never heard of before, but each one of them is very important because it links this generational chain from Seth right the way through. If you take it all the way through, it ultimately leads us towards Jesus. And God's promise, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, could never have been fulfilled without the faithfulness of these very ordinary people who at times are actually unremarkable people. In fact, to most of us, including myself, they are little more than probably unpronounceable names that are just part of some ancient um, genealogy. Let me pick out a few for you. Um, Just a a few little examples, um, at least of the ones that I can pronounce, okay? So, So... Seth, when he was 105 years old, he gave birth to a son called Enish, or Enish, or whatever you want to call it. But Enish name means man. And it comes from the Hebrew word that means to be frail or to be weak. And just highlights, I guess, how fragile, how weak we are by ourselves. However, a remarkable thing happened and is recorded in connection with the birth of this boy, a boy who we know very little about, of course, But people began to gather together to worship God, to proclaim his name, and to pray, which led to a revival of public worship of believing prayer. 
So while the worldly descendants of Cain are boasting in their own strength, the descendants of Seth are giving glory to the name of God. In fact, we see this theme occurring throughout the Old Testament. Time after time, the nation of Israel drifts into idolatry and and spiritual apathy, but God always raises up a believing remnant who will cry out to God and who will live obediently before him. Now, there's another name that's listed here, and most of us may have heard of this one. It's a guy called Enoch. And when Enoch was 65 years old, he gave birth to Methuselah, who's got a reputation of being the oldest man who ever lived. But it was the birth of his son that seems to have completely changed Enoch's life. Perhaps it was the responsibility of raising up a child in a godless world or that brought him to the realization that he needed the Lord's help. But whatever the reason... God so gripped his heart that he began to walk with God and do the will of God. And he became one of only two men in all of Scripture who never died. And both Enoch and Elijah were taken up into heaven alive. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says, it tells us that it was by faith that Enoch was taken into heaven. You see, he believed God, he walked with God, and he went to be with God. In fact, he sets an example for all of us to follow. And as we'll see in a moment, the time that Noah, or at least before Noah's time, and, and this flood time, it was difficult, difficult days. Vice and violence was just the order of the day, and, and people ignored God. They, they seemed to live by the slogan, if it feels good, we'll just do it. Not unlike today, of course. But we see the same theme developing only a remnant of God's people, a remnant of people believed in God. Listen, today we need to be those people. Men and women who will be prayerfully seeking first the kingdom of God above everything else. But think about it this way. How many people does it take for God to get the job done. Let me give you some clues from Scripture. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, it says that 10, that's 10, sorry, 10 righteous people could have saved Sodom from destruction. In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said that when only two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to the day of Pentecost to empower the church, there was just 120 believers, but the impact of their witness was so radical that it changed the world forever. And God is always looking for a remnant who will pray, who will trust him, who will get the work done. So when situations look impossible, when our nation seems to be lost, when things just seem to be going nowhere, as it sometimes does at the moment, does it not? Remember that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And listen, God is not limited by numbers. You know that? In Noah's day, one was enough. One man. And God is not limited by numbers, and he can use as many people or as few as he wants. And as God's people, you are called to be a holy remnant. You're called to believe God, to walk with God, knowing that one day you will be with God. 
Now, Enoch had a son called Lamech, and Lamech was the father of Noah. In fact, it's the life of Noah that we're going to be looking at in much more detail over the next four weeks. After chapter 3, Satan is never mentioned by name again in the book of Genesis. But actually, it's very obvious that Satan and his demonic hosts are actually, um, have certainly not gone away. In fact, they're doing all they can to prevent the Redeemer from being born. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that verse we keep coming back to, God has actually declared war on Satan. And the deceiver intended to fight back because he certainly did not want his head to be crushed. And one of Satan's most successful devices is compromise. See, if he can convince or delude God's people into abandoning their identity as God's people and communion with God himself, well then, he can corrupt them and he can lead them into sin. So Satan's plan for defeating God's people in Noah's day was both subtle but also effective. He enticed the godly line of Seth to compromise, and the end result is them abandoning their devotion to God. And again, Satan's plans really haven't changed very much down through the years. His greatest success still comes when he can persuade God's people to compromise in matters of integrity, of purity, of biblical truth. And we need to be on our guard. We need to allow nothing to take God's rightful place within our lives. And we would do well to learn the warnings of Genesis chapter 6. But I guess to understand this story, we need to, first of all, explain some of the phrases, particularly in those first few um, verses. There's a few names there. So who are the sons of God and the daughters of God in chapter 2 and chapter 4? Well, some interpreters suggest that the sons of God are actually fallen angelic beings that cohabited with women, producing this race of giants called Nephilim, or fallen ones. And it was these children of fallen angels that have become or became great leaders. Now, it's certainly an interesting theory. Um, it actually creates probably more questions than answers, because if for no other reason, the biological challenge of how sexless beings can actually um, come together with humans. But even if that union was possible, how then could these giants have actually survived the flood? Because we read in Numbers chapter 13 that the spies that went into Canaan, they saw them there. So either they somehow were able to survive the flood, or that there was some sort of second invasion of fallen angels. However, I would suggest that both ideas probably seem extremely unlikely. There's probably a more likely interpretation of Genesis chapter 4, chapter 6 and verse 4, and it's that they were actually human, and God saw the people of that day as fallen ones. However, by contrast, you'll notice that men saw them as mighty leaders who wanted to make a name for themselves, similar to described in, in, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, where it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. And we need to understand that God sees people very differently to how we see them. God doesn't look on man's outward appearance. God looks at your heart. And pride and self-importance does not impress God. 
So I think it's fair to say that the emphasis of Genesis chapter 6 is on the sin of man, not on the rebellion of angels. Therefore, the way in which God responds to their behavior in verse 3 suggests that the sons of God are actually human. And the best understanding is that this godly line of Seth, the sons of God, were have mixed with the godly line of Cain, sorry, the ungodly line of Cain, the daughters of man, and they have abandoned God in the process. So what appears is that the people of this godly line of Seth are being have been seduced by just mere appearances. They're marrying whoever they fancy, regardless of suitability, but the effects are devastating. And this same theme is picked up in the New Testament. We read about those who are friends with this world, James 4.4. 4. Those who love the world, 1 John 2 verse 15. Those who conform to the world, Romans 12 verse 2. Rather than living with godly values that are distinctive from this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. But it's in Galatians chapter 5.16 that we, we get some great practical and actually really positive advice. It says this. It says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Listen, God's word is very clear, I think. You need to fight for godliness in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you do in your own strength. You do it in his strength by his Spirit. Because, listen, there is no room, there is absolutely no room for compromise among God's people. So don't think for a moment that God has not noticed man's wickedness until now or that he's somehow taken by surprise by it. But rather the phrase the Lord saw is both sobering, but also it also shows that he is about to take some action. So God puts a time limit on this first phase of human existence. 120 years is almost certainly referring to the approaching flood rather than to man's lifespan and this also shows us something, I think, of God's character. Yes, a God who abhors, a God who hates sin, but also a God who is long-suffering, who is merciful to lost sinners. As in, there's a time when judgment must fall, but we see a God who is slow to anger, a God who is abounding in mercy, a God who is gracious, a God who is good. Listen, God give them 120 years that they might repent and they might return back to him. And during these years of grace, all the time Noah's building. He's building and preparing this, this big ark. This is a visible, visual sign of God's coming judgment. Even as Noah warns the people no one is listening. The grim truth is that God's verdict on mankind is devastating. Every inclination, only evil, all the time, verse 5. And mankind is incurably wicked. 
which is the nature of sin, when it's left unchecked, listen, it takes over, it destroys good like rust or cancer. And verse 5 is chilling. It warns us that ultimately God will not tolerate sin and rebellion. But out of the entire human race, only Noah and his family, total of eight people, believed God and obeyed his word. Even though God's spirit is striving with these lost people, they have chosen to resist his call. They have hardened their hearts, and God was deeply grieved at what man was doing. So what was it that set Noah apart? What made him so different? A few things. First of all, Noah was a righteous man. This is the first time the word righteousness is mentioned in in the Bible, but it's important to note that Noah's righteousness does not come from his good works. Instead, his good works came from his righteousness. And this phrase, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, doesn't mean that Noah somehow deserved salvation. In fact, To find favor is to receive more, sometimes much, much more than any of us could possibly ever deserve. So although Noah is righteous, he nevertheless receives mercy. And through him, so does the whole of the human race. And righteousness is a gift from God in response to personal faith. And as you believe God's word, it is counted to you as righteousness. And the only righteousness that God accepts is a righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way that people can be saved from God's wrath is through God's grace. But grace is not God's reward for a good life. It is God's response to saving faith. And true faith involves the whole of your life. The mind understands God's warning. The heart fears what is coming. The the will acts in obedience to God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit. So listen, if you understand God's word as truth, but not act on it, it's empty religion. It's not biblical saving faith. And if you get emotionally worked up about it all, but not understand God's message, it's not biblical saving faith. And if you have a mind that understands and maybe a heart that is stirred, but do not act in obedience to God's word, listen, it's not biblical saving faith. After all, faith without works is dead, according to James. So the heart, the mind, the emotions, the will are all involved in biblical saving faith. And everyone who has been saved from sin has been saved by grace, through faith, by admitting their sins, by repenting, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. No one, no one is saved by bringing sacrifices or by obeying rules or by doing good works. Salvation is a gracious gift that you can either reject or you can receive by faith. So Noah's a righteous man, but Noah's also a blameless man. If righteousness describes our standing before God, well, to be blameless describes our conduct before people. Now, blameless does not mean sinless, because no one is sinless except for Jesus And the word means having integrity. It is to be without blemish. And Noah's conduct was such that his neighbors could not find any fault in him. 
Listen, if you've been made right with God through faith in Jesus, you ought to be living a life that is also right before people. In Titus, Paul warns about rebellious people full of meaningless talk and, and, and deception who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. So how you conduct yourself in the workplace or at university or at college or school or down the shops or for that matter in a restaurant is important because you are God's representative everywhere you go. Whether you like it or not, you present something about Christ that either draws people towards God or pushes them away. The third thing about Noah was Noah was a man who walked with God. His great-grandfather, as we've heard, Enoch, he walked with God, and he was suddenly taken into heaven. Noah walked with God, and he was taken safely through judgment. You see, sometimes God in his mercy takes us out of situations, but sometimes he takes us through them. But in both cases, the one who walks faithfully with God will know his protection and his hope. Listen, the walk of faith and obedience begins with one step. It begins with trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. But that first step of faith leads to many more. Leads to a daily walk, one step at a time, that you must walk in step and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in step with him. He is your guide. He is the one who will lead you into the will, into the very purposes of God for your life. The fourth thing about Noah was Noah was a man who was obedient. One of the repeated messages that you will find throughout Scripture is that we must not only hear the word of God, but we must also obey it. And it's certainly not easy for Noah and his family to obey God. He is surrounded by people who are doing the very opposite. Peer pressure is huge. It may be this huge challenge for, for many of us, but listen, it is still no excuse for giving in to any kind of ungodly or immoral behavior. Anyone who's, ever delivered, anyone who's ever developed godly character within their life has fought against peer pressure. And this means not only saying a definite no to people or to situations, but means saying a decisive yes to God. Listen, God needs to be your joy. He needs to be the one that you delight in. He needs to be your total satisfaction. It needs to be within him and nothing, nothing else. You know, I guess most people, when they've read the story of Noah, is one I, maybe some of you have been around since you were, were a kid. You know the fact that Noah built this ark, but what most people tend to overlook is the fact that that was only possible because he first built godly character and obedience into his life. And so must we. There is no shortcut when it comes to obedience, but obedient we must be. So it was into this corrupt, this godless, this wicked culture that God called one man who was prepared to be different, whatever it cost. And through him, God's sovereign plan began to unfold. Noah and his family, along with every kind of living organism on earth, will be saved. So what was it that set Noah apart? Simply this. 
Noah listened to God's every word and built a wooden vessel to survive a flood. Now, don't forget how crazy this is. Again, you know the story too well, but this guy has lost his mind, or would see me has. At face value, this is the most ridiculous, the most ludicrous idea that anybody has ever come up with. This is a huge boat. It's going to have three decks in it, just one door, health and safety issue for starters. It's got multiple small windows, and out of those three decks, then it's going to be divided into compartments, and get this, so that an assortment of animals can move in. Someone has calculated that they think that this ark would be large enough to accompany about 125,000 animals, of course, with extra room for food and for storage. Listen, if you could measure the level of delusion that Noah was under at that time, I think he's probably right at the top of the list if God had not spoken. But God had spoken. And God had established this unbreakable covenant with Noah. And because of this, Noah was prepared to look like a fool, which is exactly what you should expect from someone with biblical faith in a covenant-keeping God. See, this is not risky for Noah. There's no risk here. God has spoken. He's heard God's voice. He's simply obeying God. Hebrews 11, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, here's the key words, in reverent fear, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And faith in God will always make you look different from those around you. Let me give you two examples as we finish. As you step out in faith, you will discover that God will bring confirmations along the way as you walk in step with him. For Noah, it came through the animals. Do you ever wonder how Noah's going to gather all those large number of animals and birds and creepy things, or creeping things even, into the ark? Well, it seemed that God in his sovereign power brought the animals to Noah and controlled them at his bidding. Listen, I don't think it should surprise men and women of faith that birds and beasts and insects know the voice of their creator and obey him. In fact, what should surprise us is how little we do. How much more should those who are made in the image of God be listening to the voice of God and obeying him? So when you step out in faith, you will see God's hand at work. The second illustration is examples taken from a book, Do What Jesus Did. Um, it's from somebody called Robbie Dawkins. I've a read, it's quite a good little read actually. But the story begins with a woman who left a conference and she's left, she, she's driving away in her car and she's praying, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do anything just tell me what you want to do, and I'm going to do it. In that moment, she sensed that she needed to turn left. Now, she, she almost felt it was a bit of a whim, but she turned left because she's so desperate to obey God's voice. After driving for a while, she felt that she was supposed to turn right, so she did, admittedly, admittedly still wondering whether God was directing her or not. But at the same time, she's excited. She's full of anticipation, before she knows that she ends up in front of a, a corner shop, and when she, when, which, which she senses is the place where God wants to bring her, 
And once she goes inside, she's waiting to see how the Lord is going to direct her. But the only thing that keeps coming into her mind is this. Go over to the counter to the assistant and stand on your head. Pretty weird, right? See, at this point, most of us would have said, okay, okay, I think I've got this one wrong. This is definitely not God speaking. And we would probably have just left the shop, jumped back into our car and driven away. But she's got every reason to discount this. But instead, she prays, Lord, are you sure? She gets nothing more. There's, just, there's no more confirmation. But she knows, well, there's nothing unbiblical about doing this. See, the Holy Spirit is... Is gentle. He's not going to force you to do anything that you are unwilling to do. So in that moment, this, this woman's got a decision to make. So There's a choice to make, and she says, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. It took her a little bit of time, admitting to build up some of the courage for it. In fact, she waited until the, stop, the, the shop was empty. All the other customers had left, and then she ran up to the till, and she says, hey, look what I can do. And she did a handstand against a pole right in front of the assistant. And from her upside-down position, she saw him drop his eyes and shake it. Sorry, drop his head and, and shake it. She got back up on her feet again. She was thinking, he must think I'm completely mad. But as she faced him, she saw that he was actually crying. She asked him, what, what, what's the matter? And he told her. She says, about half an hour ago, I'm sitting here working and I'm praying, God, if you're real, have someone come in to the shop and stand on your head. What are the chances? That day, he gave his life to Christ as a result of one woman's obedience to God's voice. And this is an unusual story. I'm not suggesting you go into shops and stand on your head. But what I am suggesting is that you need to learn not to ignore the gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's all too easy to say, this can't be God. And particularly when our dignity is at stake, we can easily just shy away. But in doing so, we can also miss out on God-given opportunities to see lives changed, ultimately to see God's name glorified. And God is calling each of you to live a life of faith, just like Noah. And that means listening. It means responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And for God to use you, you need to know God's voice. You need to be willing to obey it, but also you need to be willing to allow your life to be interrupted and actually to make yourself completely available to him. Can we do that? Listen, we need God's Spirit to be able to do that. We listen to him. Let's just stand together. We're going to just pray. Beck's going to come and just lead. I want to do the Holy Spirit one again first. It'd be great as we just, just finish things up. I want to just, in these, as we finish our service, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come because we need his help. Each one of us needs to be filled, repeatedly filled, refreshed by his Spirit. Only as God is speaking through his Spirit that we can step out in faith. And then I want to pray for boldness. I want to pray for courage. That as we hear God, that we then do what God has called us to do. And perhaps even this week, that we would have those divine encounters, those moments when we impact someone's life because God has spoken, because God has been leading us.
Let's just pray first. Father, we come to you. Father, we thank you, Lord. The promise of your word is, Lord, that you will pour out your spirit on all people, on men and women and young people alike. And Lord, we're here, Lord. We want to receive from you afresh today. Lord, we admit, Lord God, that we get dry too easily and too quickly. But Lord, we pray, Father, that in your presence, Lord God, that you fill us fresh. But also, Lord, as you fill us, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage that we need. Father, I pray this week, Lord, I pray, Lord, for divine appointments. Father, I pray, Lord God, for us to hear your voice speaking, that we would step out in confidence and respond to what you want us to do. Father, we pray that you would lead us by your Spirit every single step of the way. So come and touch us now, Lord.